0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have on the line Joseph Sabo, and we are going to be talking about prophecy. We recently opened up an email address where people could submit questions, and then we will use various podcasts to answer some of those questions as they arise, or as we get enough questions to fulfill a podcast.
1: Joe Sabo, would
0: you like to say hi to the audience?
1: Hello, podcast world.
0: So, prophecy. The question here that I'm, I'll read it real quick, and then you can make some initial comments. how does open theism answer biblical prophecy being
1: fulfilled? I think this is a, this is a really good question. Um, it's very general and I think it's it's probably that way on purpose. A lot of prophecy nowadays and probably all throughout the church to some degree or another has always been a big question you know what is what is the nature of prophecy, how does prophecy work? etc. and the way that you answer this question as far as what your understanding of prophecy is, how is it fulfilled, what does it mean that prophecy is fulfilled, can prophecies fail, etc. is going to reveal a lot about where you stand theologically. And this is this is also a good question because it's it's going to draw a sharp line between the open view of the future and every other you know, aspect of theology or realm of theology within the Christian umbrella, so to speak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So prophecy, how I like to tackle some of these issues is basically trying to use some sort of scientific method to try to figure out how the biblical authors viewed prophecy. So let's pretend you're someone and you have exhaustive divine foreknowledge. You know all of the future ever. You're Nostradamus and you're making predictions about the future. We have an actual Nostradamus in history, people might be familiar with him, and he made a ton of different prophecies about the future. Would you say that this guy had fulfilled prophecies yourself?
1: No, and yes. I think Nostradamus is sort of a, an interesting case. I think I think that a lot of times people go back and read his predictions and then apply it to events that they see happen. You know, so he talks about I remember when 9-11 happened, there was like a big thing about how Nostradamus predicted it. Well, if you go back and actually read that, it's it's definitely not talking about 9-11. It's, it's just very general sort of statements that people in the future are then able to say, oh, well, you know, this correlates with that. I, I mean, in the sense of, you know, did Nostradamus see, for example, the Twin Powers coming down? I would say no.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone would really say that he was had some sort of clairvoyant knowledge of the future. He couldn't predict the future. Instead, what he did was he made incredibly vague statements, and then his followers went and took those vague statements, and they just applied them anywhere that they could see fit. His prophecy was in a manner such that almost anything could be used to fulfill that prophecy, and no one would take that, well, maybe some people. The the, the people who really love Nostradamus, his devotees, they would say, oh, he's prophetic and knows the future. But normal people say, this guy just wildly speculated, and there's incredible mental leaps of logic to say that this guy knew the future. So how could of Nostradamus, how would you ever be convinced that he actually did know the future? What type and fulfillment of prophecy would you expect to see in order to convince you that Nostradamus actually did know the future?
1: I think it would have to be detail. It comes down to detail. If if God, for example, or Nostradamus, or you, or anybody was, you know, had exhaustive foreknowledge of the future or was able to see future events, they would be able to to predict within with great accuracy and with extreme detail events that are going to happen. They would be very precise. It would not be these, you know, broad, sweeping, general statements that are somewhat arbitrary and obtuse that, you know, maybe 75 events could fit into. Do you know what I mean?
0: Right. And so before the United States election, I predicted that Trump would win the election. And I was right. I would not say that's evidence that I know the future. Maybe, maybe if I predicted the exact electoral counts, but still people might chalk that up to my knowledge of politics or, or, movements in the political realm. But if I predicted every single vote of every single voter and there's evidence that there was no voter fraud, those are different classes of prophecy. I yeah. think if
1: you predicted with exact certainty the Electoral College results that the left would widely speculate that Chris Fisher is perhaps a Russian agent.
0: Absolutely. So that's one way to make prophecy come true as well. Does the person making the prophecy have the power to make the prophecy come true? Or is he in league with people who do have power to make the prophecy come true? And that would be evidence not of knowledge of the future. That would be evidence of political or social power.
1: Right. It's power, I think. is You know, when God says a thing that he's going to do a thing, it's not that he's looking, he, he lives outside of time, and he's looking into some, you know, crystal ball type thing or he knows everything because he decreed it, I, I'm of the mind that when he says a thing and then does it, the emphasis is that he is able to complete the things that he says he will do. It's a, it's a measure of his power, not his ability to foresee future events and then tell you what's going to happen.
0: Right. So, so those are two questions. What, what's the purpose of the prophecy? Is it knowledge or is it power? Are you telling people some sort of clairvoyance, some sort of crystal ball predicting the future? Or are you telling something that you have the power to fulfill, to make happen in spite of contingencies? So we've got to keep those in mind when we're looking at what type of prophecy is being said. And also detail. I'd like to point out one resource that we have linked to on our page, God is Open, is this link to this article, and and our, our article is called Blogger Explains Why Vague Prophecy Points to Open Theism. And the blogger doesn't list his name, and that's a shame, because this is a really good article. And he talks about the strength of prophecy, and he lists a bunch of different statements. A king will be born, a king will be born in Israel, a king will be born in Bethlehem, a king will be born in Bethlehem, and 37 through 4 BC, a king will be born in Bethlehem in 4 BC. And he just keeps getting more and more detailed until his final statement is, a king named Jesus will be born in a manger in Bethlehem in 4 BC on the evening of March 31st, the parents named Joseph and Mary. (laughs) And his point is, these are different powers of prophecy. The detail matters. And if you're only finding prophecy of the vague type that's not as strong of a prophecy as something incredibly specific with, with very detailed elements that all come true. And his question is, and he points out that, here, I'll read this statement, I contend that individual Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus' first advent fall in the two to three range, that's the, the strength of the prophecy. He's saying they fall in the vague ranges, in the imperfect scale in my example. They do not reach the four strength. He's saying this; they're very vague prophecies and they give a lot of leeway. And then he says this, open theism provides a better model for why biblical prophecy would have the strength, two or three, which is the, the very vague type of prophecy, and not the nine or ten, which would be an incredibly detailed prophecy. He writes, if the future is open, then there's a lot of historical wiggle room that God gives freedom. Given this freedom and given God's unfavorable, sovereign plans, then we wouldn't expect biblical prophecy to be much higher than a two or three. Open theism is often compared to a chess game in which a grandmaster will always beat a novice, even though the grandmaster does not know in advance what the moves the novice will make. The grandmaster's plan of victory is assured, God's plans are assured, even though the individual moves might not be known in advance. The grandmaster will win, even though we don't know that it is by capturing the rook and forcing checkmate on move 14, say. In other words, the reason the strength of the Bible prophecy is low is that open theism is true.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary of, not only a good summary, but that's a good, the way that he extrapolated that information from just the level of power in the prophecies that we do see in the Bible. You know, I mean, that's a logical conclusion, I think. I think that's a pretty good argument.
0: So when we look at prophecies of the Bible, there are some prophecies that do have details. The second question is, and this is funny because there's that paper that was put out by an author whose last name is Roy, which lists all the biblical verses that talk about the future. And his very first one is about Genesis and, and Israel being enslaved for 400 years. Now, 400 years, that's a detail. Did that detail come true historically? No. Yeah, no. The Exodus says they were in Egypt for 430 years. And I so may, maybe 400 has some wiggle room. Maybe three or 430 was being rounded down to 400. But the detail was loose enough to allow wiggle room. And that's not something you expect if prophecy was of the type where it's predicting incredibly solid details about the future. Right. So, uh, let's take a second example of prophecy, the prophecy of Tyre or Tyre, however you want to pronounce it. I think most scholars say Tyre. I say Tyre a lot, but Nebuchadnezzar was said to overthrow Tyre. And uh, there's a lot of details, horses trampling the streets, city being thrown down, the city never being rebuilt. There's there's a city of here today, right? There is. There is. Uh, it was built back up, even though the biblical prophecy said it would never again be rebuilt. I mean, we could understand that's hyperbolic. It, it doesn't, even if it was meant to predict the future, it could be hyperbolic that you don't, it's not going to be built up anytime soon. But if this was actually a prophecy, a foreseeing of the future that is entirely known in every single detail, you'd expect more of those details to be correct. You wouldn't expect these anomalies where various details do not come
1: true. Right, so also if, you, if your view of prophecy is that they're you know, detail-oriented and what God is doing is he's looking at the future and just basically telling you what, you what he sees. The fact that the prophecy said that Tyre would not be rebuilt and there is a city of Tyre today would mean that he was wrong. I guess, you know, if that's your view of what prophecy is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. People treat prophecy as if God's just looking into the future and then reporting back to us what's going to happen. But when biblical scholars, and I got, I pulled down a quote by Golden Jay and a quote by Christine Hayes, they're both biblical scholars, and both of them point out that prophecy is not a foretelling of the future. It's not so saint It's not looking back and reporting details to us about what's going to happen in the future. Instead, I'm going to read Christine Hayes, for example. The Hebrew prophet should not be thought of primarily as a prognosticator predicting the future. Rather, the prophet addressed a specific and present historical situation in concrete terms. The prophet revealed Yahweh's immediate intentions only insofar as he sought to convey Yahweh's response to present circumstances. The goal, however, was to inspire the people to faithful observance of, of the covenant in the present. Thus, any predictions made by the classical prophets had reference to the immediate future as a response to the present situation. The prophet's message was a message about the present, about what was wrong in the prophet's day, about what must be done immediately to avert calamity."
1: The prophet's goal is not disseminating the future to you know, the inhabitants of Israel. It's like she's talking about. There's, there's a situation here. You, you guys are worshiping idols. If you keep this up, the Lord is going to judge us. This nation is going to be, and then you know, a little specific, maybe this nation could be taken into captivity. You know, it's going to go away for this long, but then the Lord will, will bring you back in after you repent and, and whatnot. It's not it's not so much, like I said, like disseminating the future. I mean, if you read the Pentateuch and the laws, what's the punishment for idolatry? You know, it's it's not good. You know, it's right. not, it doesn't take a genius to around and say, hey, these people are worshiping idols and prostituting at the temple and sacrificing the foreign gods. This is not good. Something bad is going to happen. You know, that's not to take away from the, the divine influence on someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but it's not it's not rocket science either. I think a lot of people equate, like, prophets in the Old Testament with this soothsaying, future telling, but really it's preaching. You know, the prophet's role mainly is to bring the word of the Lord to people. And a lot of times that's simply, you know, exegeting the Old Testament, well, not the Old Testament because they lived in that time, but exegeting, you know, the laws to them or warning them of impending danger or anything along those lines.
0: Right. So my favorite example is Jonah. Jonah's a nice, simple book, straightforward messages. It's written in clear terms. Jonah is sent to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. These are wicked people. They're enemies of Israel. And he wants them dead. But God forces him. He tries to run away from God. God forces them back. And he says, basically, you're going to be my prophet. I'm not going to let you do anything else. And I'm just going to physically coerce you into being the prophet. And finally, Jonah relents. He goes and prophesies. And he tells Nineveh, he says, 40 days and you guys are going to be overthrown. This sets the city into a panic. And they're like, we don't want to be overthrown. Uh, So let's, how about this? We all repent. And maybe, just maybe, Yahweh, he doesn't even use the word Yahweh, we don't have any record of. So they don't even know exactly what's being said, what the character of this Israelite God is. They just know that there's a prophecy against them for their wickedness. And they say, maybe, maybe God will repent if he sees we repent. And the entire city repents. And Jonah, he goes up on this hill, and he's looking down at it. And he wants them destroyed. But the destruction never comes. And he is mad. He says, God, I knew you were like this. I knew that you repent of what you said you are going to do. So the prophecy itself wasn't conditional. He wasn't out there saying, repent or else perish. He was saying, you guys are all going to die. And he didn't want to give them any hope for repentance. And when they did repent, and then when God did change his mind, and the text says that, It says, when God saw that they repented, he did not do what he said he would do. This is a legitimate repentance. It was a condition that wasn't listed in the prophecy against them. And it's God responding to circumstances. Because God says, in the end, he says, why am I going to destroy these people? They don't know they're left from their right hand. These these guys are ignorant. I'm going to show mercy to them. And even though I make a prophecy, guess what's more important than prophecy? people are more important than prophecy. I don't care if the prophecy fails. If these people are repentant, I'm going to save them and
1: give them a chance at life. Right, and I think that's a good example of the open view of prophecy, just to specifically answer the question. You know, open theists, by and large, we believe that all prophecy is conditional, even if it's not explicit in the text. Even if it doesn't say, repent or this will happen, you know, like, like you just said from Jonah, the city's going to be overthrown and the people sort of take it along themselves to repent and try to change their ways. Well, the prophecy itself didn't say anything about God relenting if you repent. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there doesn't have to be an explicit condition in a prophecy for it to be conditional. I mean, even if you look at 2 Kings chapter 20 verses 1 through 7, this is the incident with Hezekiah. It says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. That's it. That's the entire prophecy. You're going to die, set your house in order, you're not going to recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember now, O Lord, I implore you, how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, prince of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, indeed I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So... Here you have, in five verses, you have a prophecy that has no conditions in it whatsoever, and then the exact opposite of what was said was going to happen does happen, because of prayer, and because of Hezekiah's righteousness, and how he followed the Lord with his whole heart. I think that is, along with the passage in Jonah, perfectly exemplifies the open view of prophecy and the nature of prayer. We can influence the Lord with our prayers, whereas, you know, every other, you know, Arminianism, Calvinism, whatever, is not going to allow necessary necessarily for that real influence upon the Lord. Like if, you know, if God says he's going to do something, you praying about it is not going to change his mind. Which also begs the question here in this incident with Hezekiah, if you presume exhaustive definite foreknowledge, then you have to believe that God knew that Hezekiah would... Cry and weep and ask to uh, for the Lord to extend His life before He sent Him before He sent Isaiah there to tell him that He was going to die and not extend His life. It's, it's like, which is it? You know, what's going on here? Yeah, is God, is God lying? Is, God is He lying? Is He manipulating Hezekiah? And furthermore, obviously, if you believe in exhaustive, definite, foreknowledge, well, God, wants to heal Hezekiah because He does, right? So. Why is it necessary that he has to send Isaiah there to tell him he's going to die and that he's not going to heal him in order for God to be able to heal him and not let him die? You know what I mean? It's just, it just—it doesn't make sense. There, there's—it complicates—it
0: complicates the narrative. And right, so, I
1: got—I got out of breath just trying to speak that and keep up with my own thoughts. You know, I mean, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. So usually when you're reading a text, any text, if you're coming to literature, ancient writings. The the more complicated the reading, the less likely it's true. Usually, anything that makes the reading more mental leaps than is necessary, that's, that's probably the less likely of the true reading. Whatever the most straightforward reading should be our default fault understanding of the text. You know, the reverse is true as well, where you have these explicit statements that God says that you are going to die, and then someone repents, and then he says, okay, I'm going to repent of what I said over here. But sometimes God says, I'm going to give you an eternal kingdom or an eternal priesthood. And both those conditionals are used throughout the Old Testament in, in uh, conjunction with King David's kingdom, in conjunction with Saul. He says, I would have given you an eternal kingdom. In 1 Samuel 2.30, this is a very interesting verse. And it's interesting because... You you know how Calvinists and Arminians respond to the Jonah and the Hezekiah? They say they're implicit conditionals. But watch what happens in 1 Samuel 2.30. Now, therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, so he's making a change. God is making a change. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. So he's saying, you know this thing I said before? I'm rejecting that. And what does he replace it with? He replaces it with a conditional. He says, "Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed." So this is a change of God from an absolute statement to a conditional statement. So you can't use the claim that there's an implicit conditional in the original statement. Unless open theism is true, and there's always on the back burner an implicit conditional, even in very absolute statements. God says, I'm going to give you an eternal priesthood. Then he says, you know what I said before? I reject it, and I'm replacing it with a conditional. Now, you guys have to worship me, and then I will respond to you appropriately.
1: Right. And even... Even with the Levitical priesthood, I mean, if you read the the Pentateuch and all through Leviticus, where that's all getting set up and in Exodus, you know, that was that is set to be an eternal priesthood. You know, they will serve before me forever. But if you read Hebrews, and I mean, obviously there's no temple anymore. There is no Levitical class of priests anymore. Christ has taken over that role, and that priesthood is done away with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a that's a great example of that as well. I think all this boils down to. In Jeremiah 18, where we have Yahweh revealing to us exactly what the nature of prophecy and repentance is, and it's very well-read verse, uh, starting at verse 7, says, At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. And that
0: that translation you're reading, that sounds like the ESV, is that correct?
1: No, that's actually the NRSV. I've I've kind of fallen in love with the NRSV as of late.
0: Well, it does the same mistranslation that the ESV does. In the Hebrew, there are two different words. He says, I will not do what I said I would do, like God declares against a a nation. And then he says, I'm not going to do what I said I'd do. And then the next verse says, I will not do what I thought I would do. Two different words that the version you read and the ESV both translate them as the same word. But that's not the concept being communicated. God will not do what he both said he would do, and he will not do what he thought he would do. It can't be more explicit than that. I mean, God is saying, this is how I operate. I'm going to do stuff other than what I thought I would do. And a Calvinist, they would say, oh, that's God making a mistake. That's God's knowledge changing. They're going to have to override that verse with their theology, saying that verse does not mean what it says, which... It feeds into what I claim of Calvinism is it's not falsifiable. There's no statement that the Bible can make in any context any combination of words which would get them to question their theology.
1: That's where you get the two wills from. If you have two wills, then you get away with whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Because one will is the secret will, and that's where our theology lives, our archeology theology doesn't live in the revealed will of God, because that's all spurious and suspicious and whatnot.
0: So I'd like to touch on real quickly, sometimes open theists, they claim that open theism is that the future is partly settled and partly open. And I think that's, it's almost misleading because in debates with Calvinists, like uh, I heard it in the Enyart debate, he debated a, a radio host out of California and The Calvinist was trying to claim victory, saying that if anything in the future is fixed, the entire future is fixed. But that's not really the claim. Our claim right here is that even very absolute prophecies are still implicitly conditional as we saw in Samuel with Eli's sons. Things can change. And God says things can change, things he thought he would do per Jeremiah Eighteen. So it's, I, I have a problem with some terminology, and, and perhaps open theists use this language so they could appeal to t- people, uh, people who have insecurities about prophecies, saying that, you know, if if things can change, then how can I be assured of my salvation? Or if things can change, how can we be assured of Christ's r- return? Stuff like that.
1: And right.
0: yeah, to me, the answer is not God has fixed Assurances in the future it's look at god's character and we find this in isaiah and and the claims in isaiah 40 through 48 is god says look at what i've done in the past and from that you're going to know how i'm going to act in the future god appeals to his own character for prophecy fulfillment and he expects us to use rationality so when he predicts disaster against someone he's going to kill all of nineveh we need to use common sense. If they all repent, when he then changes his mind in turn, that's not a failed prophecy. I'm sure someone wanting to be super literal and strict with definitions might say, that's a failed prophecy. Okay, but you've got to implement some common sense. The conditions changed. The prophecy was no longer applicable.
1: To touch on what you were just about, you know, how can I know that I'm, I'm saved or whatever? You know, how do I know that Jesus will return? it's all about, it's it's faith. That's how you know. You have faith in the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Christ. You trust that, you know, he is who he has revealed himself to be. And that's what you put your hope in. You don't put your hope in one line of text or some view of God is bound now to send Christ back or to the sinner's prayer. Therefore, I get to heaven when I die or or something along those lines. It's like what you said, you know, you, you look at, how how the Lord has revealed himself to you personally and to humanity in general. And from that, you know that he is faithful. He's faithful to do the things that he said that he will do. And he is powerful enough to make those things happen.
0: Jesse Morrell. I'm not sure if everyone knows who that is. He is a street preacher. He's an open theist, and he has a lot of... He's done a good uh, service to open theism, popularizing it through his open air ministry on college campuses. But he has a he has a chart that he made and it talks about the different categories of prophecy, how prophecy works. And over the entire prophecy chart, the different types of prophecies, he puts a single statement declaring that God reserves the right to modify or reverse any of his prophecies. And it's not like he's going to do it arbitrarily. Calvinists they always think God is acting arbitrarily. Oh, God arbitrarily picks one person over another and there's no reason or rhyme behind it. Whereas, actually, if you read Romans, the context of Romans, Paul is arguing that God changes due to circumstances, and God is reacting to how people react. So, yeah, God reserves the right to modify or reverse his prophecies, as we read in Jeremiah. When people change, God changes. But under that, with that underlying assumption about how God fundamentally operates, There's four different types of prophecies that Morel lists. Number one, absolute prophecy. Number two, conditional prophecies. Number three, extrapolative. Number four, analogous. So the absolute prophecies are prophecies that God declares no kidding that he is going to do. Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. It says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. So leading Israel back from exile in Babylon would probably be a good example. Ascending a Messiah for Israel would be a good example. Uh, The apocalypse, the end of the world where God comes back and judges the quick and the dead, that would be the example of an absolute prophecy. These are very firm prophecies that have a lot of precedence, and there's no reason not to do these prophecies, right? So they're absolute prophecies. The conditional prophecies, uh, that should be common sense. It would be something like, either you guys follow me or you will be punished. And the, the purpose of the preaching is to get the hearers to repent. Extrapolative prophecies, uh, Morel writes, are those in which God is able to predict the future free choice of a moral agent based on their current character and circumstances. So turning back to your Hezekiah example, The very next chapter, Hezekiah brings in foreign people to look at Israel's treasury. And right after he does that, God prophesies against him saying, guess what? You just showed all these people all your wealth. Guess what's going to happen? These enemy nations are going to come conquer you. Brilliant move. Brilliant move. I mean, that's easy to predict. I can predict that, that if you show like a mugger all your money, you're going to get mugged.
1: Right, and it sounds like that's a bad thing, right? Like, God thinks that that's a bad thing. Maybe you should have done that. You know yeah, I mean? may, maybe you how shouldn't be flashing it, your money. <laughs> right, I mean, how hard of it would it have been for him to, you know, tell Hezekiah, hey, by the way, in five years, when these people show up, don't show them all the wealth of Israel. That's going to be a bad idea. hmm
0: But, yeah, we get, sometimes God is able to predict the future reactions of human beings. The last type of prophecy we covered in a previous podcast, we talked about teleic and embatic prophecy. Morel here lists it as analogous prophecy. These are not like true prophecies. These are like the prophecies that you will find throughout the book of Matthew. It says the scriptures are fulfilled, that, and then they reference the Old Testament. And a lot of times those references, they're not absolute. Out of Egypt, I call my son. If you turn back to the context, it's talking about Israel. If you turn to how it's being used, it's being used of Jesus. There's discrepancies like that. The point of those types of prophecies, those aren't real like prophecies. Those are analogies. As something happened in the past, similar circumstances are happening now. So every time the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, a good idea is to turn to that Old Testament passage and read that passage, read the context, know what's being said there, And then see how the New Testament uses that Old Testament passage. You'll be shocked a lot of the times how the New Testament
1: is quoting the Old. Right. So when it says, you know, so that the Scripture may be fulfilled, this this does not mean that there's a checklist of all these things that have to happen and you know in space time. And then as they happen, well, that one's off the checklist. Now that one's off the checklist. Now that one's off the checklist. You said and what you touched on in the previous episode is. This term, so that the scripture might be fulfilled, is better understood to be, this is aligned with the scriptures, or this event here, there's a resemblance to this event in the past. The meaning of that word, fulfill, you know, doesn't necessarily mean checklist, and then the event happens in space-time, and okay, now it's been fulfilled. It's more of a... Bringing out the full meaning, so to speak, or to, to fill it to the full, almost fulfill, fill it up to the full, something like that.
0: And and this is, we're not just like making this up. It's, this is not being made up by open theists. If you if you turn to Joel Hoffman's work, Joel Hoffman is an atheist. He's not a Christian, and he has no reason to be defending these prophecies. But he points out that these are. What he calls proof texting, and what he means by that is showing parallel concepts. And he, he understands that they're not real prophecies. They're not being used in the New Testament as real prophecies. And he's a secular scholar admitting this. You find Christians who point this out, and people like uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, he points out this very similar way of proof texting, where these these statements are parallels, they're similar, but they're not Prophecy fulfillment, as we would think, like a Nostradamus prediction, and then fulfillment. That's that's not the type of fulfillment going on in the New Testament.
1: Among the things that Isaac does a good job at is this understanding of prophecy and how Old Testament texts relate to the New Testament, how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament, uh, things like that. You know, also it's a good rule of thumb that you know if you if you read New Testament writers, the way that they use the Old Testament is not a it's not a one-to-one correlation. It's not a line to line. It's more of a, a general idea or a concept or something less specific. He he really does a good job talking about that as well.
0: So you'd expect something like his name will be called Emmanuel, if if that was like a real prophecy. You'd expect Jesus' name to have been Emmanuel. There's Absolutely. no prophecy, <laughs> right? There's no prophecy that a Jesus is going to be born. There's a prophecy that an Emmanuel is going to be born. And if you read the context of that prophecy, it is fulfilled within the lifetime of the people saying that. Writer of Matthew is not claiming that Jesus being born is fulfilling this prophecy of an Emmanuel being born. He's saying this is the precedence. This is similar to this event. This is fulfilling this past event. So talking about that, let's turn real quick to a second question that we received, and it is on John 17, 12. And we touched on John seventeen twelve in previous podcasts, about how Scripture is being fulfilled here with the son of perdition, the son of destruction, which is likely, not necessarily, but likely referring to Judas. And uh, let's read the question real quick, and then we'll get to the verse. It says, I'm an open theist, but I work with a guy who is a Calvinist, and he presented me with this passage. And his question was, did God predestine Judas to betray Jesus? And if so, did God predestine Judas for hell? and the title of this is called John 17:12 so he's referencing this verse here and i will read the new king james for that 17:12 while i was with them in this world this is jesus talking and he's praying to god i kept them in your name this was a tasking that was given to jesus by god earlier in john he's saying i fulfilled your tasking i did it those whom you gave to me i have kept He's basically fulfilled his tasking. And none of them is lost, except, and here's the funny thing, God tasked him with keeping all that he was brought. And Jesus, for the most part, did that, except for there's one person. He says, except the son of perdition, likely Judas, uh, the context suggests it, but it's not explicit, that the scripture might be
1: fulfilled. Yeah, Maya, uh, the n r s b actually has except the one destined to be lost, so the scripture might be fulfilled. And I mean if you look in the the Greek here, that is just one hundred percent translator bias showing through in that particular version. But also here, to answer the the question, I would say no, Judas was not destined for hell. Son of perdition, son of destruction, does not mean that Judas, if that's just who we're talking about, I believe that it probably is, that he was you know, foreordained to betray Christ and suffer in hell for all eternity because of it. I mean, just plainly speaking, the verse doesn't say that, right? Right. It says the son of destruction.
0: And we remember our rule. Anytime the Old Testament is referenced, turn to that Old Testament reference. Do you know of any Old Testament reference to the son of perdition? I don't. I don't either. Neither does any commenter. You download a million commentaries, and they all say, well, the kind of the idea is there somewhere. So what scripture is being fulfilled? What scripture? And this points to what we've been talking about already, how the New Testament uses Old Testament. They point to parallels. And the fact that this verse, we, we don't know, the commenters don't know, we don't know what it's referring to, is evidence that this is not prophecy of the type of clairvoyance of the future. This is not a destined event. This is a parallel to something, and we're not sure what that something is. So I'll make one more quick point about Judas real quick. What if Judas was never mentioned in the Bible, and uh, we had no mention of him? Would people look at the Bible and say, there was an unfulfilled prophecy because there is no son of perdition? There would be. Let's pretend also, instead of betraying Jesus, Judas repents, and follows Jesus. And let's also pretend that the Old Testament had a prophecy about someone betraying Jesus. Would the Calvinists say, oh, that prophecy wasn't fulfilled? Or, more likely, would they do what they do with Jonah? Would they do what they do with Hezekiah? And say that was a conditional prophecy? You see, the Calvinist idea, the Armenian idea too, about prophecy is, prophecy is not falsifiable. There's no combination of words that you could find in the Bible that would falsify a prophecy. The prophecy is always fulfilled and it's fulfilled in vague ways, sometimes leaps of logic in order to get it to be fulfilled. So there's the question, what good is prophecy if it doesn't predict anything and can be fulfilled in a myriad of ways? What's, what's the point of the prophecy? I thought the prophecy was to Tell people about either god 's knowledge is what the Calvinist claim prophecy is, or to tell people about god 's power, which I think most prophecy is about the power. How is unlimited fulfillment conducive to either of those?
1: Right, I would agree with that about the power for sure. Um, another thing too, that Calvinism is unfalsifiable, you know by their own standards if you're you 're trying to prove a scientific theory, one of the tests is is your theory falsifiable? If there is 50 things that, if they are true, then your theory is false, and none of those 50 things are true, well, your theory is very strong. You know, if there's nothing that is, if it's true, your theory is false, then your theory is not very strong. You know, that's kind of how that works. Mm -hmm. One of the tests is how falsifiable is my theory. You know, regarding Calvinism, if they just appeal to some hidden will or that's not how that works or this is how this is because I say so every time they're confronted with something, well, I would say that their doctrine is not very strong. I think that by and large, open theism, I mean, we have pretty good answers for a lot of really tough questions, and we don't appeal to mystery or some secret will or, or, you know, any other tricks that other people use. But back to this uh, passage in John, the verse that most commentators believe is being referenced here is in the Psalms where it says, uh, he who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So but, just,
0: but the context of that Psalms verse is David and David's life, and there's no hint that it's supposed to be anything about the future.
1: Right, whatsoever. So this is actually a really good example of what we've been talking about in the overview of how prophecy works. So here you have a writer in the New Testament going into the Old Testament to pull out an idea into the future, into their time, and use it to explain an event. You know, he who ate bread with me has lifted up the seal against me. You know, like you said, the psalm is not about Judas. The name Judas is nowhere in there. Son of Destruction is nowhere in there. It's David, you know, bemoaning his current situation. So that also, you know, touches on the what we were talking about earlier, The meaning of the word fulfilled. You know, it's not like a it's like a checklist. It's not like God says, okay, we need to have someone that eats bread with Jesus, raise up his heel against them, and then I can check this off my list of things that must happen in in throughout human history as actual historical events. You know, what we have is a scripture in the past being filled up to the full. It's, It's being used in the future to explain something else or draw light on something else.
0: All right. The last thing I'd like to touch on before we end this podcast on prophecy is how innovative God is. Remember when we started the podcast, we talked about how prophecy is generally vague and allows multiple ways of fulfillment. It's not unlimited ways of fulfillment. It's not like anything can be the fulfillment of something. But there are multiple ways to fulfill the same prophecy. And we get an example of that in Matthew 3. So John's preaching, and he's preaching to these Pharisees. And these Pharisees are under the opinion that God is trapped. God had promised Israel and eternal priesthood to be his chosen people, to always be faithful to them. And John the Baptist, he fights this idea. He, say, he says to them, you know, I understand that there's these prophecies that there's going to be this Israel, this uh, people group for God. But he says, guess what? He, I'm going to start reading at 3.7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So, So some of the Israel believed that Just because they're of the lineage of Abraham, they would be saved. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So remember back in Exodus 32, God's threatened to destroy all of Israel. And Moses pleads, he says, don't destroy Israel, remember your promises. And we find that in Malachi as well, that God's remembering his promises. And, And throughout the Old Testament, that's the reason why he doesn't kill all of Israel. And John the Baptist here is arguing is God's not even limited by that. He could kill every single one of you guys and raise up a new Israel out of the stones because God is not limited to how you think the prophecy should be fulfilled. God can fulfill the prophecy in multiple different ways because God's powerful, God's innovative, and God can get things done.
1: Yeah, it almost sounds like the future is open doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it absolutely is open.
1: I'd like to point also here, it's it's good that you brought this verse up, I think. Just going back to the last question real quick on John 17, the question there being son of perdition, you know, well, let's just give him son of perdition as the, the correct rendering, which I don't think that it is. I think uh, son of destruction is better, or son that is cut off even, maybe, something like that. Here, we have John saying that God could raise up from stones children of Abraham. So the question being, you know, was Judas like a literal son of the devil or son of hell? Was he spawned from hell and was sort of an an interloper that was sent in and infiltrated the twelve? Right, so this, this brings into question this notion of son. You know, son doesn't necessarily mean that you are genetically descended from someone a lot of times um in hebrew if you know if you're a son of darkness or you know there there's people who are, you know you could be a son of wisdom you know wisdom didn't actually spawn you it it means sometimes that your character and the things that you do are in line with the person that you or idea or concept that you're being referenced you know, correlated with. So if you're called a child of wisdom or a son or a daughter of wisdom, it means that you're wise, you exercise wisdom. And in this instance, you know, no doubt God could raise up from stones children of Abraham, but those stones are not going to genetically be descended from Abraham. You know, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not possible. That can't happen. Those are stones. They didn't come from someone's loins who had Abraham's genetic material in them. But they could, however be in line with Abraham's faith? And I think that's the, that's the point of this verse, is what he's trying to say, is genetic lineage does not matter. Do you have the faith of Abraham? That's, that's the bigger question. And that's the idea, I think, that's being touched on in John 17 as well. It's not that Judas is Satan's child. It's that he did things in line with this idea of destruction or being cut off. So basically,
0: I'll do a quick summary of our podcast. Prophecy, we need to think about if the Bible is written from the perspective of an open theist or someone with exhaustive divine foreknowledge in mind. How is the prophecy written? What type of predictive power? Do the details come true? Are they conditional? And what's the prophecy being used for? Is it a power claim or is it a knowledge claim? And we also have to keep in mind the general statements about how prophecy generally works. Where God doesn't do what he said he would do, or do what he thought he would do. God thinks he's going to do something to a nation, they change, and then he changes. Then we also have to consider how even absolute prophecies, such as the eternal kingdom for Eli's sons, that is reversed because of the conditions changing. So there's different types of prophecy. There's those prophecies which are pretty absolute, but underlying all that is God's commitment to righteousness and common sense. Underneath that, there are conditional prophecies that are explicit. Underneath that are extrapolative prophecies about how people are going to act that God's not controlling. He's just predicting how they're going to act. And then we have those New Testament prophecies, which are, by and large, they're analogous. They're not actual prophecies as we think prophecies. So I would be amiss to categorize them as prophecies. I'd say they're just parallel events in history. But keeping all of that in mind, the Bible fits a lot more closely with the open theist view of prophecy, how prophecy functions, how prophecy is fulfilled. It fits that a lot more closely than what you would expect with divine omniscience of all future events.
1: It's a, it's a good summary. This is, this is a good podcast. I hope that we can do it again. So people out there, send your questions if you got them to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. Any
0: questions or comments about prophecy, particular prophecies, how different chapters handle prophecy, if prophecy is conditional, or if it's absolute, or what kind of conditions would make it false or make it true, send those questions to us. We're we're happy to answer anything. I love answering questions. I think that's where open theism excels is its ability to answer criticism. You don't find that in Calvinism, particularly, in Arminianism, you find The ability to answer a lot of questions, but not a lot of those questions which show contradictions and attributes of God, stuff like that. Arminianism can answer a lot of questions. Open theism, I think, answers more questions, especially about historical theology as found in the Bible. Our guest today has been Joseph Sabo. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about prophecy.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it.
0: If you have any questions or comments about this particular podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open website or start a thread in the God is Open Facebook companion group. Thank you for listening.